Welcome to How Leaders Lead, where every week you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I break down the key learning so that by the end of the episode, you'll have something simple you can apply as you develop into a better leader. That's what this podcast is all about. Today's guest is Madeline Bell, president and CEO of the world-renowned Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Now, you've probably heard me talk about how important it is for leaders to walk the talk, for our actions to sync up with our words. Because to be honest, our people are only listening to us some of the time, but they're watching us all the time. What's our tone, our body language? Do we listen? Do we take time off to balance our lives? Sure, that kind of visibility can be a lot of pressure, but it's also a huge opportunity to model the behaviors we want to see more out of our team. And a lot of us miss that opportunity. But Madeline sure the heck doesn't. She knows how powerful her own behavior is for setting the tone at her hospital. She recognizes that people watch her and that that visibility is an opportunity for her to shape a stronger culture. And it's helped guide her team through a global pandemic. She's dealt with staff exhaustion, financial strain, and rapidly shifting information. And she's still been a champion for the incredible medical innovation the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is known for. So let's dive in and see how she does it and how we can also build stronger teams simply by modeling the right behaviors for them. So here's my conversation with my good friend and soon to be yours, Madeline Bell. Madeline, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to be with us. I'm thrilled to be here. You know, Madeline, as as we move into 2021, how do you think the the vaccine is going to impact our COVID-19 life and, and what should we expect? Well, I'm so pleased to see that we've got two, maybe three options and more to come for different vaccines. Um, You know, at at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we have a a very long history of developing vaccines, and I've never seen anything go this quickly. And frankly, you know, the recent surges of, of, of the pandemic have actually helped propel the clinical trials, uh, faster. So I'm I'm excited about it. Um, it's certainly daunting because the distribution um, logistics uh, need to be worked through, but it's all, I think, good news. Yeah, fantastic. You know, and this vaccine is a product of Project Warp Speed. And how much does the speed to market concern you, Madeline? Well, it would concern me if I thought corners were cut. But I don't believe that corners were cut. I believe there were a lot of good people who were involved um, at every level and, um, you know, really are watching very closely, following all the safety guidelines. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not concerned about it. And I think we have a lot of uh, education to do with the general public uh, because there's lots of misinformation or just information out there that's it's unclear. We we're even trying to vaccinate children with flu vaccine, and families are saying, "Well, I'm not I'm not ready to take that COVID nineteen vaccine." So it it leads me to understand that that there's just a lot of confusion about the vaccine. How do you plan on implementing the vaccine with your doctors and your frontline workers? So we've made a priority grid um, for those um, doctors and nurses and, and environmental service workers and supply chain people who are working on our two different COVID-19 inpatient units. They will be offered the vaccine first, people in the emergency department, you know, and we have a whole 
a whole uh, priority scheme of, of how to uh, uh, distribute the vaccine. You know, stepping back and, and just thinking about what's occurred in 2020, what do you think will be the long-term impact of, of the, the COVID-19 disease and, and, and how, how it'll impact our lives over the longer term? Well, I think there are a lot of changes that will come in terms of how we how we work and um, how we prepare. You know, I've spent decades of my career pre- preparing for a pandemic. I mean, most people don't didn't even know what was the difference between an epidemic and a pandemic. And so, you know, for me, we've been doing table talk exercises for this type of thing for years, and it was beyond anything we ever prepared for, frankly, but um, I think we will all step back and learn so many lessons um, from this pandemic, those of us in healthcare and and those of us in in other industries. Do you think that masks will become a a way of life in, in the United States? I believe so for certain people. I think for certain people who are, um, you know, more immunocompromised or maybe older folks, um, you know, masks are now becoming a fashion statement with all kinds of, uh, you know, different sayings and and patterns. Uh, I I remember saying to somebody, you know, I I would see, I've been to Asia and I know you have too, and I would see, you know, people with masks and sort of seemed curious and like, overkill to me. And now I sort of get it, you know, like uh, given the original SARS epidemic in Asia, you know, I think we all have a better understanding. So I do think it'll become, you know, just more of an accepted thing for people to do. You you know, as an aside, you you talk about masks being a a fashion statement. My my grandkids gave me, you know, masks that that were specially designed with my grandfather name of Ogo on it. You know, do you have a a specific mask that really uh, you wear when you're stepping out? (laughs) Well, my favorite mask is the one with the CHOP, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia CHOP logo on it and our our chief of cardiac surgery, heart surgery, uh, gave it to me and he had it made on Etsy. Um, so I, I love that mask and it has <laughs> CHOP Cardiac Center on it. It's my favorite. Yeah, true blue to the very end. That's, That's fantastic. Right. You, know, you know, as you know, this podcast is all about how, how leaders lead. And, and I want to focus in on how you have inspired your, your team and these uncertain times we've all gone through. You know, this is really tough stuff. Uh, why is it so hard to do? Well, I think that it's so easy to lead during good times, and we don't even sort of think about that. But in times of crisis, we have to be really thoughtful and planful, and we sometimes have to develop new muscles. You know, I would say that the new muscle I developed was feeling comfortable with saying the the term, the the statement, I don't know, because I always felt like I was the CEO. I had to have every answer for every scenario. And we've been doing twice a week town meetings and really communicating a lot. Um, I've been actually going on the front lines um, and talking with people with my PPE on. Uh, But I, I, uh, I got comfortable for the first time in my career really saying the words, I don't know, but then following up to say, but here are the three things that need to be in place for me to know. Um, and so I think that it's it's hard. So I, I've developed new muscles as, as a leader through this pandemic. What advice would you give people on, on how to get that into that comfort zone of being able to say, I don't know? 
Yeah, I do think I, I do think that sometimes um, we as leaders feel like we need to be infallible, and I think it's a matter of you know making people realize that there is a vulnerability in being the CEO or being the leader, and that's okay. And sometimes it makes you much more relatable to people if you are vulnerable. You know, they don't really want to know the answers; they just want to know you know, how the answers are going to come. What's the timeline? Uh, so I would say to people, I, can, I don't have an answer on that. I really don't know. But this will, I will know in three, three weeks and here are the things that have to be in place for me to know. And it just calmed people down, even though I wasn't giving them the answer. And I think leaders have to just get, you know, become okay with that. So if you don't have the answer, then being clear about the process you're going to use to go about getting one has really been the key, as, as yeah. I understand it. You know, yeah. uh, you know, there, there's so many facts that have been flying around uh, the COVID-19. You know, how have you managed the facts that are out there? Yeah, you know, I, it's interesting. I work with largely with a group of scientists. And so, you know, early in the pandemic, you know, I realized that um, I was hitting them with the facts you know, all of the facts about how it's transmitted and how to treat it. And I, I realized that that was not working. And so it's really not about the facts. It's really about recognizing that, yes, you should give people the facts, but that is just not enough. You have to follow it up with listening and understanding that people are frightened and that you have to, you know, understand that there's a lot of emotion involved in this. And people are worried about themselves and not just the patients they care for, but keeping themselves safe. And many of many of them haven't faced that in their careers. So I, I realized that it was much more about support, supporting people emotionally and being a good listener than it was just hitting them with the facts. So how do you go about helping your people understand the feelings that they're going through? You know, and, and we all have... Uh, you know, these feelings that we've never experienced before just because what's happened has never happened to us before. Yeah, I think it's giving people the space and time um, to process through it. And and it, sometimes in small groups of people talking through what does this feel like, which, you know, for some tough surgeons, they're not used to that. Um, and it's it's it is those same people who are not used to sharing their concerns or their feelings that we need to really, we needed to say, you know, this is okay. This is really hard stuff. It's hard for me as the leader. You know, I've been saying to people continually, this has been the most challenging time of my career. Um, and that gives people a little bit of permission to sort of let their guard down and say, you know what, it's been really hard for me too. And so I think it's modeling that behavior of, you know, it's okay to talk about how hard this is. Yeah, you've you've mentioned communications. You've talked about your, your the town halls that you do, and you talked about that very powerful message that you just mentioned. You know, you know how have as you've gone about communicating with your teams, what's been the biggest thing you've learned? Well, I I do think that. Um, there's so many things. Um, first of all, I think frequent communication in many different, using written emails, town meetings, in person, um, I think really important for leaders. And that, how do you do that? You know, for me, it's a little different. I, you know, I have people that have never left the bedside or the exam room and, and I need to be there, 
you know, to periodically check in with them to say, you know, I'm your CEO and I'm here for you. And I know you've been on the front lines all this time. Um, I think that's really important. Um, but I also think that people as, as the leader, they're constantly watching you and watching how you're, you know, how you're reacting to all of this, the tone of voice that you're using, how wary you are. And so I've been really trying to show how calm I am. And I've retitled myself from CEO to chief reassurance officer. (laughs) And, you know, my goal is to just continually be calm and reassure people, give them the space they need to process this. Um, But it's, it's really a, it, it's really as a leader taking on a very different role. Yeah, chief reassurance officer. I, I've never heard that. Is that something you internally just, is that a word picture you use for your leadership? Yeah, I, I literally made that up in the midst of, you know, the first wave of the pandemic because I felt exhausted myself because all I was doing was trying to reassure everyone and reassure everyone not only about their their safety and the safety of our patients, but about our financial situation. We, like many hospitals, lost hundreds of millions of dollars of cash flow from the pandemic. So, you know, you sort of, you're, you're dealing with something you've never dealt with before, and you're in the midst of a financial crisis. And we're, you know, we moved 6,200 people to work at home, um, which we had never done before. You know, we, we, we scaled up telehealth, you know, all of these things. But the, the place where I was spending most of my energy was just reassuring everybody. And I kept telling them, you know, let's remember what the what the British did during World War II when they were being bombed every day and you'd wake up and you know your neighbor's house would be gone and they would be gone too is they 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 had to remain calm and carry on and so I've been sort of saying to people we got to stay calm and we got to carry on you know so just modeling that that calm and reassuring presence I think has been very important you know, Madeline, it's it's so easy to go from problem to problem, tactic to tactic. How do you how do you keep yourself out of the weeds and 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 keep the big picture front and center for for yourself and your people? I think that's a great question, Dave, because I I've um I'm I'm such a proponent of making sure that I stay at the right level, that I'm thinking about issues and problems that I need to solve for the next decades and not for tomorrow. And when you're in in the midst of a crisis, I think as as a CEO or any leader, you really need to discipline yourself to make sure that you're not just putting out fires and you're not just in the weeds. You know, a big a big one of big of big area of focus for me is pushing decision making down to my team and I had to stop and discipline myself to say you know, people have a tendency to to run things up the flagpole a lot in the midst of a crisis because they want direction. Um, and I had to continue to to make sure I was pushing the decision making down, reminding people um, we've got to practice progress over perfection. You know, all the things that I'm always focused focused on in in good times. Um, so it's it takes discipline to make sure that you're thinking strategically, you're thinking about the future long term, and not just about how to get through the next 24 hours. 
Did you carve out specific time to make sure that you did that? Or did you change the way you do do uh, your calendar? Or, or? Yeah, I, I really forced myself. I have, a, I have a meeting every week with my team called the CEO Council. And I really forced myself to make sure that the time that we were using together as a team was not just about you know, the here and now today with what's happening with this pandemic, that, that there were other venues for the leaders to work out those, those decisions, but acknowledging and any, and certainly spending time on any big picture questions that needed to get, get it answered, but to really keep looking at the strategy. So we spent the entire summer pressure testing our strategy against, you know, what we learned and we're continuing to do that um, in a way that that has us sort of forward thinking and not just thinking about today. You know, there's no doubt that COVID has upset the apple cart for almost every leader. And how do you go about dealing with the major disappointments that I'm sure you had uh, of, of having your best laid plans truly <laughs> disrupted? Yeah, I, I've talked to the teams of leaders about, um, you know, sort of making the analogy to the stages of grief. Um, when COVID hit, we had this great strategy. We had a whole capital plan. We actually had a 10-year financial plan that sort of laid out how we're going to invest in our strategy. I was in love with it. It was great. And then COVID came and, you know, we, we, we had to pivot and we lost, you know, $260 million in cash flow and all these things happened. And I, I realized that what I was really doing was going through the stages of grief and that I just needed to let myself go through those stages. You know, the, this, some of the stages of grief are anger, some are denial, you know, you, you, and then to the point where you get to the final stage, which is a, a acceptance. And so, um, you know, as a nurse, I, I understood the stages of grief. And so I started using those, that analogy with, with the team um, to talk about, you know, how this, how this might feel. Again, back to how it feels. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you're such a positive person, Madeline, and, and I've heard you talk about the importance of looking for the silver linings. You know, how so and, and, and how do you go about doing it? So I think you have to be um, very deliberate about it. And so I've spent time with my team uh, stepping back and taking stock and saying, here's all the silver linings that have come out of this pandemic. You know, as an example, we had a lot of excuses about why people couldn't work at home. Now of the 6,200, we still have 5,000 people working at home. Now, mo- most of our pe- people are working at the bedside or in the exam room with patients. Um, and so now we're, you know, we, I think the world is our talent market. If we can hire people that are working at home, that means I can hire people from anywhere in the United States without barriers. Um, So that's a major silver lining for me. Um, The other thing that we did during the pandemic, which I'm so proud of, is we went from doing about 20 telehealth visits a week to 2,000 a day. And, you know, that's what happens during a crisis. It becomes the motherhood of invention. And, you know, we, we, we had all the tools we needed. We just had some cultural barriers to, you know, oh, how are we going to do this? And we figured out how to, to see our patients every day. And so we have to, we are now being really deliberate to say, what did we learn about these things that we did quickly? And how could we step back and tweak them and make them, um, 
you know, make them sort of the way we do our work now. And um, the other thing is just, you know, people did a great job of, of making decisions quickly and I don't want to lose that. And so, you know, I've been calling these things out like, wow, this is, let's do more of this, even though we might be out of a crisis stage, although right now we're, 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 we're still struggling with, uh, with a surge of, of the pandemic. But, you know, how do, we, how do we make these great things last? You know, you're obviously in the healthcare business and you're serving others. And, uh, and I know that's your focus, but what do you do to make sure that you're on your A game and that you take care of yourself? Yeah, I think I, I I talk about this a lot with my leaders because it takes discipline. Frankly, um, it's it's easy to work. It's seductive. It calls you in. You know, it's uh, especially when you're in the midst of a crisis. But I think self care is really important and find those couple things that help you recharge and disconnect. And I've also been talking to people a lot about the pause. Like we do our best and most creative thinking is when we're sort of out of the, you know, the the day-to-day crisis management. So making sure that you have space and time to think and pause and become creative. And um, part of it is just modeling that behavior and telling people it's okay to to take time away. And, And I've been deliberate about saying to people, you know, I'm taking this day off because I need to recharge. And I think it's important for people to hear that. You know, healthcare as you know better than most, uh, it is, it's such a huge issue in our country. And if you were the president of the United States, Madeline, tell us how you as a leader would go about coming up with a winning solution that would be right for our country. That's a, certainly a challenging one. Um, um, I, I think about this a lot, though, because health policy um, really matters to me. And I really love the system in Germany. The system in Germany, um, if I have it all correctly, but it's um, the each employer pays a 7% per employee and it's matched by the government. And so the employers do sponsor healthcare, um, the, but the government does too. So it's sort of a, a nice nexus of private and public funding. And that allows them to have, I think, a, a good pool of money. And, uh, you know, I don't think it's good for the government to be completely prescriptive um, about how it works, because I, I do think innovation often comes uh, in private industry. Um, so I like the way the German system works, where you have a combination of, you know, of, of employers or the private market partnering together with with the government to create a, a system of healthcare. Now, because I work with children and you know children are our future, I very much believe that we need to start investing more in children's health in you know preventing diseases, giving them access to good good healthcare uh, because that really creates a lifetime of of good habits and a lifetime of health. Well, you've got some really good ideas on how you would tackle this, but when it comes to like getting everybody else on the same page and, and getting the right people in the room, you know, how would you go about that? Because, you know, you know you've got your ideas, but how, how would you go about galvanizing the, the horsepower of the United States? Well, I think we have such incredible talent and I, I would make sure that I have people from 
from um, multiple aspects of healthcare industry. I mean, innovation is at, I think, the, the core of how we're going to help solve, solve healthcare problems in the future. And, you know, bringing innovative people together to give them the license to, to solve some of these problems, I think would be really important. So investing in research and in innovation, um, bringing really good minds together, and frankly, very much bringing both sides of the aisle together politically. I think that convening people is really the best way for, for us to go in terms of creating a better system and better policies for healthcare. You know, we're moving into 2021, and what's your prediction for the state of the nation's health, not only with COVID, but the impact it's had on so many other diseases? You know, people always talk about people who haven't had the checkups and, you know, all all the, you know, the mental issues, you know, just, you know, how do you look at the state of the nation's health? I'm really concerned. I think COVID's put a spotlight on multiple things. It's it's put a spotlight on the lack of equitable care that we have in this country. Um, it's put a spotlight on um, the lack of, of behavioral health, mental psychiatric services that are available to people. And, you know, we were part of a campaign among a lot of other hospitals called Stop Medical Distancing, and I also think it's created a barrier for people who are frightened or delaying in, in accessing healthcare. So we have a lot of work to do. I would say most of the work is in the area of ensuring better access to behavioral, mental, psychiatric um, support for everyone from children uh, up to, you know, to older folks. Madeline, this, you know, it's been fascinating to hear your thoughts on this subject. And I'm going to wrap this up with a, a little fun with a lightning round Q&A, okay? And uh, so, first of all, what are the three words that you think best describe you? Enthusiastic, optimistic, and driven. Do you have any hidden talents? Do I have any hidden talents? Well, I love I love to cook. I don't know if that's a hidden talent. And I used to love I used to love to rollerblade. That was like my favorite one of my favorite things to do. Um, I would say my 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 the thing I really love right now is to paddleboard. That's probably the thing I did all summer long to recharge. <laughs> Great. You know, if you could be one person for a day, who would it be and why? Well, I'm a big history buff, so I would love to be um, John Adams. I, he was such a brilliant man and had such great foresight about how this country should be set up. Um, and I, I wouldn't mind walking in his shoes for a day and having his wisdom. He was extremely bright, no question about that. What's your biggest pet peeve? I, you know, I would say my biggest pet peeve is people who see the glass is half empty all the time. Um, it, it's just, it, it really bothers me if that's how people lead. And when I'm around people like that, it, it really, it really rubs me the wrong way. <laughs> oh, that was fun. I love doing this. Tell us about your, uh, your upbringing. So I'm the oldest of three children. Um, my parents were very young when I was born. And um, when they would introduce me to people, they used to say, this is our oldest daughter, Madeline. She's raising us. <laughs> and um, I think I probably was a little bit of a, of a know-it-all and somebody who um, 
you know, started as a young person, as a leader. And I, I, my parents talk about that. You know, my mom continues to talk about that today. You know, I learned that you actually have a picture of yourself at the age of three under a Christmas tree wearing a nursing cap. Did, did you always want to become a nurse? Was this something that you, you know, just felt like you're almost born to do? I, I really wanted to from a young age. Not sure if I asked for the nurse's cap when I was three years old, but um, I always wanted to be a nurse and looked up to other people who were nurses. And my mom was also a squeamish person. So whenever anything happened at home, she would call for me. And I started to realize, like, actually, I'm pretty good in emergency situations <laughs> and I can certainly tolerate blood. So it kind of reinforced that feeling that I, that I was very interested in being a nurse. Can you tell us a story about your childhood days that will tell us a, a lot about the kind of person you are today? Well, let me think. One of the one of the things in, as a child that I loved was Girl Scouts. I loved camping. I loved getting badges. I would do everything I could to get, you know, the most amount of badges possible. Um, and I remember even being elected leader of my troop when I had multiple girls who were much older than me. And I came home and I said to my mom, "Wow, they." they elected me as the leader uh, of the troop, you know, when there's several girls older than me. And, and she and I, you know, talked about the fact that I was very interested in being a leader and, and liked leading people. And I think that sometimes goes along with the territory of being the eldest child in the, in the family. But anyway, I think Girl Scouts was an important um, contributor to who I am today. You know, Madeline, you, you went to college. Tell us where you, you went and, and why. Well, I went to Villanova. Um, I went. I was admitted to multiple other colleges, undergraduate, but I went to Villanova. Um, loved their nursing program. It had been around for a very long time, but it was also a very you know large campus with lots of other um, uh, areas to to learn from. And um, I I got a scholarship there, so that was also a big contributing factor. And then I went to University of Penn for graduate school. Uh, which is obviously an amazing school. So two really great places in the Philadelphia area. Tell us how you landed your first professional job. Well, I, I became a nurse, um, you know, after being at Villanova for four years. And in my senior year, I actually applied to work at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. And it's the only place I really wanted to work. I applied other places and they put me on a nine-month waiting list. And when my name came up, I w it was two weeks before graduation and they said, well, you can start working, but you have to work permanent night shift. And so here I am, a 22-year-old woman with two roommates who had cool, fun daytime jobs. And I was going to go to work when everybody else was going out to have fun. But I agreed to do it because I just wanted to be there and I wanted to work with children and, and their parents. Um, and so I did. And never did I expect when I walked in the door the first day as a new nurse that someday I would be the CEO of, of that same organization. Tell us the story of, of the most incredible positive experience you had being a pediatric nurse. Well, I think the best part about being a pediatric nurse is to uh, teach parents how to care for their children at home that may have an illness. And um, I also worked as a home care nurse. And I remember um, going into homes and um, seeing families that were very poor, but they had this incredible resilience and ability to take care of children who are very complex on different technology mm -hmm. that sometimes the most educated, well-to-do families wouldn't be able to do. And so it made me realize that 
Um, parents are very motivated and can be taught to do some pretty technical things uh, to care for their children. And for me, I, that that was a very rewarding experience to go into the homes and help families and many t- times help families who didn't have a lot of means or education and um, but did a wonderful job. What, what was your biggest frustration being a nurse? I think the biggest frustration I had was what really led me to leave the bedside, which was um, seeing that there were things in the healthcare system that didn't always work and being very curious about why, you know, who made the decisions and why it is the way it is. Um, So I think what was frustrating to me is that I could care for children and I could do what was in front of me, but I really wasn't able to impact the bigger picture. Of, of healthcare and, and why we did things the way we did. And um, so that was a frustration and that frustration actually led me and the curiosity led me to do what I'm, I'm doing today. Did you have a, a light bulb moment where, where you decided that you, you wanted to set your sights on hospital administration? I think it was uh, one time sitting in the cafeteria talking to a lot of uh, colleagues and everybody was talking about uh, a frustrating situation. And I thought to myself, well, I could sit here every time, you know, and talk about this frustrating situation, or I could understand the root cause and do something about it. And I remember that day, I remember the people who were around the cafeteria table with me, and it really led me to to think about it in a different way and, and to pursue the career I have today. When did it hit you that you said to yourself, you know, I really want to run this place someday? Well, it's interesting. I was chief operating officer, and I was really happy being the chief operating officer. I had done that for, for eight years, and I, I, I really just enjoyed the challenge of, you know, operating a 24-7 operation. Uh, but I remember, and this is unfortunate because this is a lesson I try to teach other people, is that it really dawned on me when other people started recruiting me to be CEOs of other hospitals or children's hospitals. And I I thought to myself, wow, if they believe in me, maybe I should really explore this as a, as a career option because I had not been really thinking in that direction. And so I tried to turn, turn that around and say to people, don't do what I did and wait for somebody else to believe in you before you believe in yourself. Believe in yourself before you get that external validation. But frankly, that's what it was. I had lots of inbound calls saying, we really want you, board members calling me saying, yeah, we want you, you know, to come out and talk with us. And I did a little of that and realized that, yeah, this is actually something I'm interested in and I can do and other people believe I can do this. Starting out as a nurse, how has that really impacted you being the CEO and the leader you are? Well, I think one major trait of nurses is that you have empathy for people. And um, I think as a leader, it's critically important to have empathy. It's really important to understand and to walk in the shoes of the people that are working for you, particularly people that are many layers below you on the front lines, understanding what's important to them, how they see themselves relating to the big picture, and um, frankly, being, being, being able to be where possible, you know, on a first name basis with, with folks. You know, even though we have 16,000 employees, I'm, I'll never make that goal of being on the first name basis with everybody, but 
um, really important to, to understand what their experience is. You know, this is probably a very unfair stereotype, but a lot of times doctors are not really seen as the most empathetic individuals. Do you, how do you drive home the importance of empathy to, to really high, high performing doctors that, you know, they have an intense job, the grind is, you know, you gotta keep moving forward. How do you, how do you build that skill? Well, um, it's actually, I, I pushed our team to create a, a leadership development program for physicians. And we spent a lot of time talking about the fact that even though they may not be in a leadership position, that by virtue of the fact that they're physicians and they're writing orders for other people, that they're the team leaders, that everyone is watching them. And that it's really important that they set the, the right tone and the things they say, sometimes their body language, the things they don't say, uh, really set the tone for the care delivery team. And so letting them first own the fact that people are watching them and it's important that they do set the tone, frankly, it's often an aha moment for them because they th sort of say, you know, I'm out there, I'm doing my thing, I'm taking care of patients, not really realizing that all the people in the care team are taking direction and, and watching them so carefully. And I think that giving them that self-awareness and reminding them uh, is a very important step towards, you know, getting them to a place where they're really not only empathizing with their patients, which I think they do very well, but for the other members of the care team that are looking up to them for direction. Now, when you think about your organization, you're world-class, you know, Children's Hospital of Philadelphia is renowned. How do you go about raising the bar for such a high-performing organization? Yeah, I think that's actually difficult because you, you know, you don't want to rest on your laurels. And our goal is to really define care in the future for children. So it's really giving people um, the expectation that you want them to innovate, that you want them to constantly be defining what is the next generation of pediatric healthcare. We do that in many different ways. Some just through the traditional, we have a research institute. Mm -hmm. Some of it is through an innovation tournament that we hold uh, on a regular basis. And another is through a program that I developed called the Frontier Programs that allows people to apply for funding to accelerate their ideas um, once they are sort of partially baked research bench to bedside ideas. Uh, and I think all of those ways get people thinking and rewarding them to think creatively to define the future in a different way than the past. When you looked at your business, how did you go about deciding what cultural behaviors you really wanted to drive and reward so that they would become the culture that you have today? Yeah, I think that a number of things, certainly to the culture of innovation. And when you think about a hospital, in one way, you want to be standard. You know, you want to have standardization. You want to be highly reliable. You want to say every time we do something, we want to do it the exact same way. And so it's complicated to pe for people to say, yes, we want, we want you to do everything the same way every time you come into the hospital, just like when the, a plane takes off. You want them to go through that checklist in the operating room. You want them to go through that checklist, relentless standardization, doing things at the same time. But how do you drive that standardization and that, um, you know, high reliability culture at the same time as telling people to innovate? And, you know, you do that through example, through rewarding behaviors, rewarding people for making mistakes and trying something new. That's very difficult to do in a, in a hospital setting. It takes a lot of nuancing. I think um, 
I do, I embed messages every Monday. I do a message to all 16,000 people. So I try to embed components of the culture I want to drive. Um, today, we're having a leadership briefing for 300 leaders. We do that once a month. Again, embedding cultural messages. And many times it's just also my actions, not just my words. And so I think there's just many ways to, to really drive that culture. Madeline, how important is, is recognition? And, and do you have a, an initiative that, that in particular really makes it a, a, a high value to the organization? Well, we certainly have something called Bravo, where we give people Bravo points, and I think that's terrific. There's something else that I do, and I did that earlier this week, called the Good Catch Program. And, you know, when people get admitted to hospitals, one in a thousand of them have the opportunity to get harmed, and that's pretty high. Mm -hmm. If you would get on a plane and know one in a thousand times there'd be an error happening and you'd be harmed, you would never fly. <laughs> so we really try to create this high reliability culture and reward people for something that we call good catches. And so I meet everybody on a monthly basis who's had a good catch. And um, as an example, you know, one environmental services worker was talking to the seven-year-old boy every day and uh, she clean, was cleaning his floor. And one day she went in and she noticed that he just wasn't interacting with her in the same way, but she couldn't put her finger on it. She just didn't seem that he was, you know, talking or relating to her. So she went out and got the nurse. And by the time the nurse came to the bedside, he actually had arrested. And, you know, she saved his life. That was a good catch. And so, you know, everybody, whether you're an environmental services worker you know, whether you're a nurse at the bedside, you have this opportunity to, to do good things, um, use your judgment, have that questioning attitude. So I meet everyone on a monthly basis who, who has these types of good catches, and I reinforce the positive behaviors associated with the things that they've done. That's fantastic. You know, Madeline, you're, you're really known as being a, a real innovator in, in, in your industry. What are you most proud of? Well, I think I'm most proud of... Uh, really helping our research institute to uh, leverage some of the strengths that we've built uh, already in some really unique areas of cancer immunotherapy, gene therapy. And when I get a letter, which I recently got from a family whose little girl was born with a genetic disorder and that would have left her blind by the time she was in her late teens, early 20s. And because of the, the culture of innovation, the investment in research, this summer, she was able to get the injection of two different two genes in each of her eyes that mm. replaced the bad gene and is now able to see and do things that she wasn't able to do before. And when I get letters like that, it's such a reinforcer to me that, you know, doubling down on investing in research, uh, which is frankly doesn't show an immediate return, uh, but it's a return on mission, not a return necessarily on uh, monetary investment. Uh, is is really very motivating to me to continue to do that. Well, you have such a noble cause for your work, which is fantastic. And, mm -hmm. you know, you, you mentioned earlier that one of the things you do to drive innovation is the Frontier Program. What was the genesis for that? Well, it was really just the recognition that there were a lot of good ideas among these 16,000 people. And some of them that were not brand new ideas that were looking to to be hatched, but ideas that had been hatched and incubating, but just needed some acceleration to scale them. And, um, you know, 
in the past, it would take many, many years to get your research or your ideas to the point where you could get external federal funding. By that time, you know, it wasn't such a new idea anymore. So this was just a way to say, I'm going to, I'm going to bet on you and believe in you and believe in your science, your ideas, and I'm going to help you realize your goals of scaling this to more patients. And it's been so wildly successful. And it's, you know, gives people excitement and hope that, you know, sometimes these cures could take decades to occur and to help accelerate and scale them allows a researcher to, to, to realize their dreams and, you know, often less time than it, than it typically would. Fantastic. You know, I, I know you've collaborated with Penn and Novartis to, to develop a drug for leukemia. Tell us how you brought that about. It's difficult to bring different parties together and get yes. everybody on the same page. You know, it's interesting. At the leadership level, I would say that, but luckily on the ground at the physician scientist level, people collaborate really well. And um, sometimes it's about getting out of their way and letting them collaborate and doing well. Mm-hmm. So, you know, a lot of the, um, the science behind the innovation was at Penn, but the application of that innovation was about taking a chance. And Emily Whitehead, who's been widely reported in the news, was the first patient. And she really had no hope. And our physicians said to her family, she'll probably have about 12 hours to live. So the Hail Mary is trying something that's never been tried before, but we're gonna we're gonna do it. And you know, called the researcher at Penn and said, okay, we're gonna do this on a patient, provided her with um, with the with the with the cells the re-engineered cells to, to, to eat her cancer, to say, to say it very <laughs> bluntly. Mm-hmm. And uh, she ended up having a, a really bad reaction. And our doctors got to put their heads together and said, what could we do to counterbalance this reaction? And they, they really thought outside the box, applied something, and it worked. And 12 hours later, she was off life support. And, you know, all, it, you know it's, it, it seemed like a miracle story. Wow. And now mm. there's been several hundred children who have had this therapy with, you know, a 90% sec- success rate and children with relapsed leukemia previously had a 10% chance of living. So to go from 10% to 90%, but it was just that teamwork, that collaboration, that putting their heads together to say, you know, we're going to think out of the box. She's having something called a cytokine storm. We don't know what to do with this, but there's this drug that works on you know, it might work, but has never been tried before. And I think it's just that, um, you know, creativity and innovation and teamwork that allowed that to happen. Can you tell us a story about the two-year-old that comes in to your hospital without two feet and two hands and no money to pay for a procedure? And then the decision you made on the spot and what the ultimate outcome was. Well, um, this little boy was in another hospital, and because he had a bad infection, he lost his his extremities, his hands and his feet. And he had come to our hospital, and our surgeon-in-chief came to me and said, look, we have this really unique opportunity to perform a double hand transplant that's never been done before. This is the perfect patient where we think we have the highest likelihood of success, but we won't get paid for it, and we don't know how long it will take because it it, frankly, what has to happen is another child of the same size and skin color and tissue type has to pass away. And those family members 
have to agree on the spot to donate their hands. So what are the chances that that would happen? But we, you know, he said, will you give me permission to start this process? And I said, yes. And then our, because I thought that's what we're about. We're about innovation, taking chances, calculated chance, you know, risks, but taking, taking risks. And at the same time, our, our chief marketing officer came to me and said, well, this is going to cost us tens of thousands of dollars, but we would like to, to videotape every one of his sessions, including his surgery if it ever happens, because the chance of it happening was actually very small. And I said, okay, so we're going to do all of this for free, and we're going to spend tens of thousands of dollars on this you know, high-level video audio crew that's going to follow him around and all his doctor visits and at school and at home and, and, and wait for this, this, this thing to happen. So I said, yes, because again, if this happened and it was successful, what an amazing story it would be. And four months later, donor hands became available that were the perfect match in every way. While that was happening in the four months, our team was simulating this whole exercise. They printed out on a, on a, on a printer, uh, they printed out, you know, uh, simulated hands that and they, they just practice and practice and practice over and over again. Team of 40 people hoping that it would happen, but not knowing for sure. Donor hands became available and they took all of that work that they learned with the 3D printer, you know, uh, hands. And it was completely successful. And I, I get to see him periodically. In fact, I'm going to be interviewing him for my podcast at South by Southwest uh, coming up this year and his surgical team. And, um, you know, the rest is history. And, it, and luckily, we've been able to tell the story because we documented all along the way. Wow, that's, that's just an amazing story. Shifting gears a, a, a bit here, what's the best advice you, you, you give women on, on how to elevate themselves in the workplace? Well, I, it's, it's all about in their head, <laughs> you know, reminding them that they need to convince themselves first before they can convince other people uh, that they belong, that they own it, uh, helping them to get the imposter syndrome out of their head. What do you I, mean by imposter yeah, syndrome? Yeah, you know, so many times I remember I was talking to a physician, a woman who had, you know, the best medical school pedigrees you can imagine was is the VIP, you know, when I have a VIP family, she's like the go-to person. She had gotten promoted to be a head of a center. And I sat down with her at for coffee. She said, I loved some advice. And the first thing she did was tell me that she didn't think she deserved this, this, uh, this promotion and that she thought other people mm. and thought maybe other people thought the same thing. And I said, what you need to do right now is stop that narrative right away, get that out of your head, own it, feel good about it, and then start thinking about, what do I want to do in one year? What do I want to do in five years? How do I tell my boss that's what I'm going to do? And so we, we spent a lot of time, and I, this is, I'm telling you about a conversation that I've had dozens and dozens of times with women. So, so many, so many times I think it's about self-confidence and owning this yourself before you can convince other people. What is it that is innate, you think, with women where that is a challenge? Is there anything you know, that drives that, in your opinion? 
Yeah, I think that, you know, sometimes women are taught or maybe raised, certainly in my generation, that um, you know, women need to be polite, they, they need to be good, uh, that maybe asserting themselves is, is not feminine. And, you know, that's the only thing I can think of because it's so pervasive in my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm hoping next generations and each subsequent generation some of those things that I see will will change, but it it's it's probably the most frequent conversation I have with with women about advancing their careers. Madeline, what would be the three bits of advice you'd give to aspiring leaders? The three most important things you think you could tell somebody? Well, I think one thing is to recognize that people watch you, uh, and I, I mentioned this earlier when I talk about physicians, but I think leaders always forget that somebody watches what they listen carefully to what they say, they watch their body language, they watch who they promote, how they spend their time. And to be strategic about that, you know, and I think a lot of times leaders forget that. So that I think is really, really important. Um, the other thing I'd like to emphasize is the importance of, of having empathy for the people that work with you and to, to really have strategies uh, to, to work on getting that information, listening tours, whatever you want to call it, situational awareness of what's happening in your organization, undercover boss, what, you know, whatever way you want to do it, I think is really, really important. And I would say last is, is, is to really, to be an effective leader is to empower the people that work for you, drive decision-making down, make them feel that they're able to, uh, to run their business unit, to make decisions, to make mistakes, learn from their mistakes. And not everything needs to come up to you as as the leader and to feel really comfortable that you shine when they shine and that you take credit for their work and help them uh, promote themselves. And that's your greatest reward. Well, Madeline, there's no doubt you're certainly a great leader yourself and and making the world a better place. And I want to thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights. I'm thrilled to have had the opportunity to be here with you today. Don't you just love how Madeline handles herself as a leader? She is truly the real deal and exhibits the behaviors that she wants to see throughout her hospital. During the COVID-19 crisis, she needed her team to stay calm. So she intentionally set a tone of calm and reassurance. She also felt that she needed her team to feel like they could take time off work for self-care, given the incredible hours everyone was working. So she made it a point to take a day to recharge too. She wanted her staff to listen to patients, so she intentionally schedules listening tours herself. She understands the leadership power of her own actions. And now it's time where I get to give you a little coaching so that you can develop into a better leader. This week, as a part of your weekly personal development plan, I want you to ask yourself two big questions. First, what qualities do you want to develop in your team? Second, what specific behaviors can you model that will demonstrate those qualities? For example, say you need more innovation and creativity from your team. Well, model a behavior that encourages it, like making it a point to get out of the office for a day to do some big picture dreaming and then make sure that your team knows about it. 
And if you need more positivity on your team, think about your own body language and tone during the day. Do you give off the same kind of positive energy that you feel like you need from your team? Remember that your team may not be listening, but they are always watching. So be strategic with your words and actions as a leader and model what you want to see more of. So do you want to know how leaders lead? What we learned today is that great leaders model the right behaviors. Thanks again for tuning in to another episode of How Leaders Lead, where every Thursday you get to listen in while I interview some of the very best leaders in the world. I make it a point to give you something simple on each episode that you can apply to your business so that you will become the best leader you can be.